Well, let me ask you a question about faith. Is all faith faith? It may look like faith. It may feel like faith. But is all faith faith? Is all faith equal? Well, this morning, as we are looking at the book of James, chapter 2, I encourage you to open your Bibles to James, chapter 2. If you uh, are using a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, you are, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles uh, in, in the chair in front of you, a black color Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take it home with you, uh, to use it and, uh, and read it. We'd love for you to have it. But if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, it's on page number 1012, 1012. As you're turning there, um, I want to remind you that uh, we are currently going through a series of sermons uh, in the book of James, and we are taking one section at a time. So um, that's why we encourage you to open the Bible and actually follow along, keep the Bibles open, uh, because everything I'll say is from this book. And uh, if you are not used to how to read a Bible, uh, the big numbers on the page are chapters. The small, tiny uh, numbers are verses. That just helps us with cruising along and knowing our place in the passage. Um, but here is the Word of God for us this morning from the book of James, chapter 2. I'll be reading from verse 14 to verse 26. James chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. What good, it, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Would you bow your heads and pray with me that God would bless the proclamation of this word? Father, we recognize that in our own ability, in our own wisdom, by our own human reason, none of us would delight to hear your word, and none of us have the ability to understand it or to receive it or to believe it. And therefore, O oh Lord, because of our depravity, we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit even now. Cause your word to come alive and create faith in us, a faith that responds and acts, a living faith. We pray this in the name of Christ. We pray this through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. James chapter 2. Friends, this passage has been greatly debated, greatly misunderstood, and greatly abused. Some think that James contradicts what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letters, especially in the letter to the Romans, where he argued, where Paul argued specifically, emphatically, declaratively, and very clearly that man is justified and declared just and righteous before God by faith alone. And Paul is not the only one who declared that. He uses prophets like the prophet Habakkuk that declared that the righteous shall live by faith. In Romans chapter 1 and 3, Paul wants to show that our standing before God is one of being found guilty. Guilty because of our sin. So how can man be declared unguilty? How can man be declared innocent? How can man be declared righteous before a holy God when man is guilty? How do we experience a change of status from guilty to no longer guilty before the judgment seat of God? Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 3 and 4 that we obtain this change of legal status before God by faith alone. Believing what God says about His Son, Jesus. And trusting in what God says about His Son, Jesus. That in Jesus, a righteousness that is apart from the law has been revealed. What, what, and, and it's through the life of Jesus, through His death, through His resurrection, that now sinners and rebellious, guilty people like you and me can be declared righteous before a holy God. Our status of being declared right with God is entirely dependent upon the sacrifice of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus upon His death and resurrection. And this justification, this new legal status called justification, is applied to us and is ours exclusively by faith. 
when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus for that salvation. Friends, this is one of the greatest principles of the Bible that has been lost in the Middle Ages and was recovered by the Protestant Reformation. One of the greatest theological and biblical differences between our view of salvation and the view of salvation promoted and preached by the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church is this very doctrine. How can man be declared righteous, justified in the sight of God? The Roman Catholic Church claims that we are justified by faith and works. In the book of Romans and many other passages of Scripture clearly teach that man is just justified by faith alone. And yet, the book of James seems to say that man is not justified by faith alone, but by faith and works. If you listen carefully to what the book of James said and, the, and what it, some of the verses it stated, it seemed to say that man is not justified by faith alone. So the question is, is the Bible contradicting itself at this point? Is both the church of, of Rome correct and the Protestant Reformation correct on this battle? The Bible does not contradict itself at this point, and here's why. When we understand what the book of James is saying in its context, what this passage is saying in the context of the rest of the book of James, uh, we will see that James is not contradicting Paul at all. And here's, here's one of the ways for us to understand what each of the authors, both Paul and James, are doing. Paul, when he's dealing with the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Romans 3, his main question is, how is man justified before a holy God? That's the answer. That's the question he's posing. How can man be justified before a holy God? And the answer is by faith alone. When we get to the book of James, James is dealing with a different conversation. For James, the question he's asking is, what faith is useful? What faith is saving faith? Is all faith saving? Are all professions of faith saving? Now, I want to say that to Baptists who love professions of faith, who love to see professions of faith. And there's various churches and movements in the history of, of even within the, within the Baptist churches that, and, and we live in one of those moments today, that we love numbers of professions of faith. But I must ask you, is all profession of faith saving? This is what James is dealing with in this book, and specifically in this passage, the nature of saving faith. Now, you'll say, how do we know that this is James's problem and not the same one that, J that Paul addresses in Romans 3? Well, here's how. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Paul, uh, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith 
but does not have works. Can that faith save him? James is interested to know what kind of faith is saving faith. Now, throughout the book of James, he has been teaching and describing true faith, genuine faith. As a matter of fact, the whole book of James, we could summarize. If, if we were to use two words to describe the entire book of James, those two words would be genuine faith. That's why the, the theme of our our whole series of sermons is called Genuine Faith. Uh, he is interested um, not to simply say faith and works. He is interested about the Christian life as a life of faith. He is not teaching that faith and works have an equal standing before God. In the rest of the book, James speaks about the Christian life as, uh, look, for instance, look at verse, um, in chapter 1, verse 3. He speaks about the testing of your faith doesn't say the testing of your faith and works. It's the testing of your faith. In chapter 2, James tells us, he says, show no, chapter 2, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. He doesn't say the faith and the works in our Lord Jesus, as you hold the faith. In chapter 2, verse 5, James says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. In chapter 5, verse 15, James speaks about the prayer of faith. In none of these places is he putting works on the same level with faith as if faith and works have an equal role. For James, the Christian life is a life of faith. But what James does in chapter 2 is asking but is all faith, faith? Is all faith, saving faith? And in order for him to drill down the point he wants to drill down, he is going to give four illustrations. In this passage, he has four illustrations. The first two are negative illustrations. They describe what faith is not or what true faith, or what saving faith is not. And the last two illustrations, he will describe and, and bring home what true faith is. So we're going to look at, even though there's four illustrations, there's only three points for the sermon. Can you handle that this morning? Three points I want to bring home from this passage. Here's the first one. Not all faith is living faith. Some faith is dead. Some faith is dead. Not all faith is living. James warns us against the danger of believing that just any kind of faith is useful for our salvation. The illustration he gives is, is in verses 14 through 16. Look at this passage. James gives a situation in which a believer encounters another believer, another Christian, a brother or sister, and this other Christian, uh, they, are, they, they, they lack clothing, they had food. And, and the, the person who sees the, the needy Christians sends them off with a good hope, with a good wish. Be in peace. Be warm and be filled. 
a good hope, a good intention, a good faith. But he sends him off empty. That faith that this man has for the, for the needy Christians, this faith leads him to do nothing, to act nothing. And James says, look at verse 14, what good is it, my brothers? What good is it? Look at, and this question, what good is it, is, is, used, is, is, is repeated twice, both in verse 14 and verse 16. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if so, someone says he has faith but does not have works? That same question is asked again in verse 16 at the end. Look at verse 16. And, any, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? In other words, what usefulness does, does that faith have if it does not lead one to act upon that faith? This illustration uh, has a point that James wants to bring home. What's the point of the illustration? The point of the illustration is not simply that you need to um, respond to anyone um, who is needy in general, although we should have compassion for all people. We should have compassion in a specially deliberate way for those who are members of the church. James is speaking here about the congregation. That's not to say that we shouldn't have compassion on all people, all needy. We should. But the point of the illustration is not simply just show compassion. The point of the illustration that James brings home is in verse 17. Why is he giving this illustration? He says, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He is not saying that such faith is weak. He is not saying that such faith is superficial. He is not saying that such faith is a half of faith. He is not saying that such faith is a partial faith. He says this faith, the faith that leads to no action, is dead. This is indeed the first major claim that James brings before his hearers. Not all faith is living. There is some faith, or there is the faith of some that is dead. And this is the point that James will illustrate again at the end, at the very end of the text, the very end of, of look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is what? Is dead. Do you get the emphasis? Do you see the introduction and the conclusion of this passage? By the way, that's, a, that's a, always a, a good way to, to look and see how a passage starts and how a passage ends. If it, if it brings up the same thing, oh, you, you, you're pretty sure that he's trying to hammer in something home. And that's the emphasis of this particular passage. You can hold faith all you want. You can hold all the faith you want. But if it's a dead faith, that faith cannot save you. Now, friends, when you and I think about dead faith, what comes to mind? Um, do you think about the person who no longer believes in God, that used to believe in God, 
And uh, now their faith became dead. So now they're no longer believing in God. Is that what you mean by dead faith? That's not how, what James means by dead faith. For James's perspective, someone can be very conscious of what they believe about God. They could be very zealous in what they believe about God, and yet their faith could be dead faith. Why? Because that faith does not produce any actions. The word for, the, the, James used the word works, does not produce any works. The word for works could be translated as actions. In other words, someone can have faith without having that faith produce actions that are reflective of that faith, that are consistent with that faith. It's a powerless faith. It's a lifeless faith. It looks like faith. It feels like faith but it has no life. It's a dead faith. Oh, friends, how many today may hold, might hold to such a faith and are assured that it will be enough because they, they think they have faith. They, they think they believe in God. They don't realize that not all faith is living faith. Here's a second point to consider. Faith could be correct and still be dead. Faith could be correct and still be dead. Someone can claim the right things about God and believe the right doctrines, the right teachings about God, and still have a dead faith. In verses 19 through 20, James will give a second illustration about the faith of demons. Now, what triggered that illustration in verse uh, 19 and 20 is the dialogue in verse 18. Uh, James is, uh, now he's imagining himself in not only writing a letter to these Christians, but as if he's among them, and he has a dialogue with them. And he says in verse 18, but someone will say, he, James can only already uh, hear pushback on this teaching. And he's, he's imagining someone already saying, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What James is saying here is that he's addressing those who think they don't need to show their faith. As long as they just keep their faith private, as long as they keep their faith to themselves, as long as they keep their faith in their hearts, that's all they need. Friends, let me pause. Let me pause here because this speaks to us today in our culture, in our Christian culture. There are so many that when, when asked about, about their, their life as a Christian, and perhaps if they're pushed back a little bit on some things about their, some of their decisions or some of their actions, and we, we, we challenge them to to think about what it means to be a Christian. One of the ways they often push back is, listen, I have faith. It's in here. I believe in God, and that's all I need. As long as you have it in your heart, that's all you need. Really? 
James says, if all you have is what you have in your heart, how can I know it's true? How can I know it's living? How can I know it's saving? Because not all faith is saving faith. So what differentiates between the faith that is just in the heart and the faith that is both in the heart and is true saving faith? What differentiates, Paul James says, the contrast is a person who says, look at my faith by what it produces, by the actions it produces. I will show you my faith by my works. The contrast James sets up is a person who shows his true faith, his genuine faith, his active faith, his living faith by his actions. How can you see if someone has faith, true faith? This is not a rhetorical question. How can you know? Look at their actions. Look at their life. At the way they show love for God by loving His people. Oh, friends, we can camp just on this one act. People who claim they love God, but they don't love the church, the people of God. The church is the people of God, not the institution, not the building, not the place. It's the people of God. Look at the way they, they show love for God by loving His people by helping the people of God who are in need, by keeping themselves unstained from the world and pursuing a life of, of holiness and purity. Look at their lives. Does their life show their faith? Just one example. Friends, when it comes to, when it comes to how we use Sunday and the public gathering of, of God's people, friends, do we schedule our lives in such a way that we desire to participate in the regular gathering of God's people as an anticipation of our eternal gathering with God? Or do we gather, do we desire to gather knowing that in this place, at this time, God gathers with His people? And you say, well, I can always listen to a sermon online. Yes, you can, but you will have missed the actual gathering of God with His people that is happening in this place at this moment. There's something happening in the moment of gathering that God is with His people. Our faith in God, does it, does it inconvenience us, if you will, to actually make it a point to gather regularly with God's people to hear God's Word together? Or, or think about, here's another example, think about our relationships do we think about our relationships through this lens of faith? Or think about the way we view sexuality or morality. Does our faith in God lead us to live lives of purity because God tells us so? We could go on and on with examples that are actions caused by faith. The point is this scenario that James gives us is not coming uh, is not um, making us choose between faith and works. The choice that James puts before us is between a faith that is empty, a faith that has nothing to show for itself, um, a faith that produces no actions, and a faith on the other side that leads us to act upon that faith 
to act consistently with that faith and act even sacrificially in that faith. In order to show the emptiness and the uselessness of a faith that is barren of actions, James brings us face to face with the faith of demons. And he says, you believe that God is one. By the way, that was a, one of the first tenets of, of the doctrine about God in the Old Testament. One of the most important beliefs about God is that God is one. He says, you believe that? Well, good. Good for you. Even demons believe that. And they shudder. What else do you, want to, you believe? That Jesus, that Jesus died um, for people's sins? Even demons believe that. That Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Even demons believe that. By the way, in the book of Mark, sweet book. encourage everyone to read, especially if you're new to Christianity, read the book of Mark. Um, a wonderful introduction to the claims of Jesus and the claims of, of Christianity. The first people, if you will, who recognize Jesus for who, who he truly is are not people, are demons, demon-possessed people. Demons know. Demons know who God is, and perhaps he, they know him in, in greater ways and in, in more real ways, if you will, um, in terms of, of seeing it. They don't need faith. They know it. They believe God is the truth about God. The point is, it is not to have a correct theology. It is not to have a correct doctrine. It is not cor- enough to have the right truths and hold to them. If that faith leads to no action consistent with that faith, it is a dead faith. Look at verse 20. Here's a point why James brings this illustration with a faith of demons. Verse 20. And can you try to imagine the tone of James when he reads verse 20? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Friends, do you get the irritation? Do you get the, the, the gravity? He doesn't even, he, James tries to use words that would, would sharpen up these, these people out of their sleepless or of sleepy faith, if you will. To, to awaken them from having this impression that as long as they have the right truth and the right doctrine, it's enough. And James says, wake up, you foolish person. And friends, what would you say if I called you that in a sermon? Would you discipline me for that? Would you really be turned off by that? Would you leave to another church? Here's James calling the people he's addressing who have this belief. He calling him a foolish person. Hard word. But it's hard because James does not want any of his hearers to fall trap in this, in this hard and this dangerous impression that simply having any faith or just any kind of faith is enough. Believing in God without acting upon that faith, without seeing a difference in our actions, such faith is useless. Um, can I give you some illustrations? And I've encountered this um, more than once. Here's some illustrations, some examples of how I've heard people have this impression. 
Um, this is hard. The next one is, is challenging because it, 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 it's very emotional, um, especially for parents who have children who have grown up and have left the faith, have, are no, lo- no longer walking with the Lord. And, and parents who are distraught by that, but one of their comforts is that they remember their child when he was six or seven or eight, made a profession of faith. So it's easy for this parent or whoever's in the situation to somehow think, I know this, my child is not walking with the Lord. But I know he's saved because he made a profession of faith long ago. My friends, I understand. No, I can believe and I can, I can try to understand the pain of that parent. I hope I'll never experience it in, in our situation, my situation. I hope I, the Lord would, would not allow us to go through that. But friends, the pain of seeing a parent aching for their child is not, is not solved by having an assurance on a faith that is dead. It helps no one to somehow keep on hoping that based on someone's profession of that child when he was young, that that profession of faith is, is saving, even though looking at this person's life, not just in one week or one month or even one year, but looking at a season of life, there's, this person is not walking with the Lord. It's clear there's not, they're not walking with the Lord. Friends, my, here's my encouragement in if, if the Lord will take any of us through that experience, put your confidence elsewhere. Not in your child's early profession of faith. Your confidence and comfort must be in somewhere else, but not in that profession, because there is a profession of faith that is dead. There are people who may have experienced that profession of faith way back, um, and, and walked away from the Lord, lived away from Him, and, and are, have come back to the Lord. <laughs> Praise God for that. Friends, at this point, it doesn't help to know, or doesn't, it's not clear where the true faith has happened, back then or recently, when the person recently came back to the Lord. Bottom line is this. Dead faith does not lead to actions consistent with that faith. One of the signs of a living faith is that it produces actions. When someone professes faith with their mouth that they are Christians, they may profess to believe in God, but here's another situation, hard situation, hard, hard, hard. But if they continue to live intentionally, continuously, deliberately, willfully, in a known sin, and they refuse to repent of it. They refuse to take sides against it. They refuse to to turn away from it. Oh, friends, that faith is useless. This is one of the reasons why, practically, when we receive someone in our membership, we ask a, a 
a new prospective member, not only to tell us the gospel and to work through our statement of faith and the, the doctrines of the faith. We, when we want to do that, but we don't stop there. We also ask about their life, about the, their walk with the Lord. And we're not asking them to be super Christians. We're not asking them to be sinless Christians. We're simply wanting to see if there's any correspondence, any correspondence between what they say and what they live. Faith can believe the right thing about God and still be dead. Be aware. Don't be foolish. Don't be a foolish person thinking that just any faith is enough. And in contrast to these illustrations, we have two more illustrations that are brought in in one point, the third point. The positive side, a living faith acts in trust and obedience to God. A living faith acts in trust and obedience to God. The illustration of Abraham and the illustration of Rahab. Interesting way of bringing two personalities from the Old Testament. The first personality, uh, the, the, the first patriarch of the, of the Old Testament um, people of Israel. The second personality at the other side of the spectrum. Not even a, an Israelite. A pagan. And not just any pagan, a prostitute. And both are examples of a faith that acted in trust and obedience to God. Look at verse 22 to 23. I mean, 21 to 23. Um, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Friends, if we stop here, we might conclude that the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation is true and biblical. That man is justified by God both through faith and through works. But notice exactly what exactly James points out about Abraham. He does not say faith plus works. He says faith evidenced by works. Why did Abraham offer Isaac as a sacrifice? Why did Abraham offer Isaac as a sacrifice? Was Abraham thinking, gosh, in order to really be saved, I got to both believe and I got I to gotta show up some actions here. Is that, what James, is that what Abraham thought about God? No. Here's why Abraham obeyed God and was willing to bring his son as a sacrifice, his own son, Why did Abraham do that? Not to show faith plus works. Why did Abraham do that? Look at verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. How do we know that Abraham believed God? Friends, what if Abraham said to God on that, on that, in Genesis chapter 22 when God said, go bring your son as, a, as, as an offering to me. And God said, listen, God, I believe every promise you have given me so far. I believe everything you have told me up until now. I, I'm, I've, I'm there with you 100%. This one, I'm just not able to do it. 
I'll do anything else you want me to. I'll, I'll, I'll kill all my, all my sheep. I'll kill all my goats, all my animals. I'll give you any of the slaves, the servants. I'll give you Ishmael, not Isaac. God, I believe everything you said. I really believe it. I truly do. But not here, not this one. How do we know that Abraham believed God in everything? It's easy for the Bible to say it. But Abraham showed it. It was visible. When Abraham went up to the mountain, he told his servants, wait here. The boy and I are going up to offer sacrifice to the Lord, and we shall return. How did Abraham know that? And when he walks up the mountain, Isaac asks his father, Dad, we got the wood, we got the fire. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, The Lord shall provide. How did Abraham know that? And when they get to the top of the mountain, Abraham takes his son, Isaac, and puts him on the altar. And he's ready to sacrifice him. And he's so ready that he's actually, he's ready. <laughs> and he was willing to do it. Do you know how? Why? Why was Abraham willing to do it? Because he believed God by faith. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises those promises 25 years ago, those promises in, in chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham, through Isaac, I will make you a great nation, not through Ishmael, through Isaac. And now it's time to believe the promises. It's by faith that he believed the promises. And he who would receive the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of him whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Why was Abraham ready to do it? Because he believed God. Do you know what else 
He was so ready to believe, even before the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Listen to what else Abraham believed. Verse, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son because his faith, even though without the revelation of the doctrine of resurrection of the dead, Abraham believed that even if he takes God to resurrect his son, he will still do it. How do we know that Abraham believed God? How do we know that his faith was a living faith? Look at his obedience. Look at his actions. Abraham's faith in God was active, living. It led him to obey what God said, and because of his faith, in God, not even Isaac became an obstacle to Abraham's obedience. Abraham's obedience proved his faith. His faith was not a dead faith. His faith was not a partial faith. His faith was, his faith was a true faith, complete faith. His actions show that his faith was living. Friends, realize when James brings up the example of Abraham, and his works, James is not saying that man is justified before God by, work, by faith plus by works, as if faith is not enough. That's not what James is saying. James is saying, how do you know that faith is enough if it's living faith, if it's real faith? How do you know, that's, how do you know it? by looking at the works. It's by looking at the actions. That's how you know that it's living, it's active, because it causes us to trust and obey. Rahab, she's another one, another example. Yeah, we might understand why Abraham was justified by works, because he's a patriarch, you would say, right? Oh, no. What Rahab did was the exact same thing as Abraham, even though the details were different. Rahab believed God. Her, her, her faith was not simply an acknowledgement that God exists and that He's real. No, look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, all that we see here in Rahab is just her works. We, we don't really know what she believed, actually. Not, not, at least James doesn't bring that out. But if we were, were to go to the story in Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, yes, the story in, in, uh, in, uh, in Exodus and, and the rest of the Pentateuch, we know that um, Rahab has heard something about what God was doing with his people. She heard that God was bringing his people and will destroy Jericho. She knew that God has given the land of Canaan to the Israelites. So what does Rahab do? Or she heard. What does Rahab do when these spies, when these messengers come? She could have said, oh, I, I'm not letting God carry out his plan. 
I'm going to stop it. I'm going to oppose it. I'm going to turn you in. But no, Rahab acts according to what she believed she had heard from God or about what God was doing. And she chose not to oppose the plans of God, but to act in accordance with them. So rather than siding with her city, rather than siding with the people who came to search for her in her home for these messengers, Rahab hid them and then let them off the wall to escape and told them to go in a different direction so they would not be caught. Rahab sided with the messengers of God's people And she had put her life in danger had she been found. She acted yet this way because she believed that what she heard about God and what he was doing, he will accomplish. Rahab acted according to what she believed about God. Rahab's faith is seen in her actions. Friend, let me ask you this. Do you realize that both the story of Abraham and Rahab are in the, in the catalog of the, of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 that was read earlier? And do you, do you realize that the, that hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11, it really tells us not simply what people believed about God, but what they acted because of their belief in God. The hall of faith in Hebrews 11 is more like a hall of the actions of faith of the people who truly believed God. Friend, your actions show whether or not you take God at His word. Your actions show whether or not you take God at His word. Whether or not you believe what God says will come true, and it's true, even if it's risky for your life, even if it requires sacrificial obedience. It's not about having a superficial faith or just a half faith. It's a matter of true faith, living faith, or dead faith. There is no room for compromising with this idea of you give some, I give some, and we'll meet halfway when it comes to the the deal of faith between us and God. Obedience to God, obedience to God's law is birthed out of trusting Him, believing Him. You know, what's the point of these illustrations? Why is, why is Abraham, I mean, James bringing these illustrations to hammer home the point of verse 26? Faith apart from works is dead. And he gave, James gives us an, an, an extra mini illustration. Just as a body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead. Friends, why is James saying all of this here and now? Why is this passage here in the book of James? Remember what happened in chapter 1? Remember what was a point that he was hammering home at the, in the second half of chapter 1? Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And he gave us illustration about the man in the, who looks at his face in the mirror and uh, walks away, and then he immediately forgets, remember? And he says, anyone who just hears the word but doesn't do it is like a man who looks at his face, and he's a forgetful hearer. Now, friends, you'll say, all right, what, what is at stake if you are just a hearer of the Word and not a doer of the Word? You might say, well, it's, you're going to be classified as a forgetful man. Okay. I'm getting old. I'm already forgetting things in life. Not much is at stake if I am just a forgetful hearer. 
and my goodness, the Lord knows. Not much is at stake if I'm just a forgetful hearer. Well, here in this passage, James shows that everything is at stake if we are just hearers of the word and not doers. If we believe the sermon, if we love hearing sermons, if we love Bible studies, if we go to extra Bible studies, if we love getting into the Word, but we're not actually putting it into practice, everything is at stake. Everything. And have you ever considered that when you choose to disobey God, that that act of disobedience speaks volumes about what kind of faith you are exercising in that moment. And if you continue to stay in that disobedience, uh, you continue to hold on to a faith that is powerless to get you to act according to God's ways. In those moments of disobedience, in those moments of choosing not to, to act according to God's ways, you are holding on to a faith that is powerless. So what do you do? Realize everything is at stake because a faith that does not lead to action is a dead faith. I want to give you a final warning. If this morning you, you feel convicted about this whole dis distinction, major distinction between faith and living faith, dead faith and living faith, say, what do I do? What's the remedy? Friends, I want to make sure you understand the remedy to fix a dead faith is not to start acting. You cannot put good actions on a dead faith. It'll just make you a moral person for a while. You cannot fix a dead faith with good actions. The solution is seek God and believe Him with a new faith, with a living faith. Confess your sin of trying to uphold and hold on to a faith that is dead. Ask God to give you the grace to give you a living faith and, embrace, and believe what God... Start, start reading this book as if every piece of it is real and true and believe it. And don't make excuses for it. Believe everything this book says. The more you expose yourself to the Word of God, the more that Word produces the kind of faith that leads us to actions. Oh, friends, realize that it is as we hear the Word of God and start believing it and accepting it as true and not finding excuses or explanations for our disobediences and our ways of life, believing everything and saying, I need to submit myself to this. I want to believe it. I want to embrace it, every part of it. In light of that, God can give us a faith that is living. And friends, realize that the centerpiece of this entire revelation of God is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because He came and sacrificed Himself. It is because He came and obeyed to the point of death. It is because He came and was resurrected by God because of His life-giving sacrifice that we, as we hear this news, can repent and believe in Him, and as we respond to Him, we receive that life from God. Friends, 
if you've never believed in God with a living faith, I am calling you today, start believing with a living faith. Nothing to hold back. Nothing to, nothing to, nothing to, to, to try to, to deal with God, a compromise, a halfway meeting between you and God. It's either all or nothing. Will you believe it? Will you believe Him? Or will you not? Three things we've considered about faith. Not all faith is living faith. Some faith is dead. Faith can be correct and still be dead. A living faith obeys God because it trusts God. I want to leave you with, with this quotation from, from Alec Motier. The life of faith is more than a private, long-past transaction of the heart with God. It is a life of active consecration seen in the obedience which holds nothing back from God. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith never comes alone. Let's pray. Father, you have been so gracious to us. Thank you for revealing to us uh, the dangers of holding on to a faith that will be useless on that final day. Father, we pray that you would awaken every one of us who might be in danger of confusing or having a foggy picture of what faith is. Help us to awaken our minds and hearts to realize what saving faith is and help us to put our trust fully in your word and in what Christ has accomplished for us. And out of that trust and faith, for you to cause Enoch in us new actions of obedience and, and, and works. We pray that you would indeed lead your people to grow in faith, in a faith that is living, in a faith that is active, in a faith that produces works of righteousness. Oh God, we pray that when the people of Austin, when the people of this city will look at, at us, they would see in us works of faith. Forgive us when we have not done that. Renew us and grow us in this faith. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.